Change and challenge is in the wind as 2008 comes to an end. The same is true when examining this month's ReachMD XM160 special series, Focus on Global Medicine. We take a look at both the changes and the challenges impacting global medicine. Dengue fever, public health, responds to the U.S. threat. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn. And joining me is Dr. David Morens, who is a senior advisor to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases of the NIH. Dr. Morens is a trained epidemiologist, a former academic public health department chair, and has published and spoken extensively on the epidemiology and pathogenesis of viral hemorrhagic fevers. Dr. Morens comes to us today from his office in Bethesda, Maryland. David, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. It's good to join you. Before we get on to uh, talking about dengue fever and uh, hemorrhagic fever, could you tell us a little bit about your own personal medical background and, and how you got interested in this uh, little corner of the uh, epidemiology world? Yes, I um, trained in medicine at the University of Michigan, and after finishing there at, with my MD degree, did residencies in pediatrics and also in preventive medicine, and did a, uh, only a year of pediatric ID training. Then I went to CDC where I had the opportunity to see epidemics of dengue and a variety of other tropical viral diseases and work on epidemic control, primarily in the Caribbean. And I just got very interested in it, and that interest has stayed on. Uh, It's really challenging, but also fun to see, as a physician, to see epidemics with many people sick at once and to try to figure out what's going on. I found it challenging and fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, uh, for those of us that haven't seen uh, dengue since uh, medical school pathology lectures, could you tell us a little bit about what it is, what the virus is, and and maybe how it fits in the uh, global perspective of uh, where it is? The dengue virus is actually four relatively closely related viruses that are arboviruses, arthropod-born viruses, and they come from the family, the flaviviruses, which contains yellow fever and West Nile and Japanese encephalitis and other viruses that people have heard of. Dengue is vector-borne by mosquitoes of Aedes aegypti and some related mosquitoes, Aedes albopictus and some others. And the disease occurs pretty much in the tropical and subtropical world where those mosquitoes are, which is almost everywhere in the tropical, subtropical world. So the epidemiology of it is very closely linked to the vector host, and the virus only goes from mosquito to person to mosquito in urban areas. This is an urban mosquito. It lives in homes in urban areas. And so it's not, a, not something you get in the jungle, not something you get on safari. It's something you get living in your home, particularly in not-so-nice areas of tropical countries. Mm-hmm. You wrote last month in JAMA that this uh, disease is a potential threat to public health in the United States. Why, why do you say that? Well, um, number one, dengue has been in the United States causing epidemics in the past, as long ago as the late 1700s, uh, and as recently as uh, we had an epidemic, in, a small epidemic, fortunately, in Hawaii in 2001, and we had major epidemics up through the 1940s, particularly in eastern port cities, such as Savannah, um, Galveston, um, uh, Charleston, and uh, places along the eastern seaboard far north is Philadelphia, as I mentioned, also in Hawaii. So it's been there in the past. Number two, one of the mosquito vectors capable of potentiating an epidemic, Aedes albopictus, has been spreading through the United States. It appeared about 20 years ago in the United States, and now it's all over the place. It's in most of the southern states. And wherever it goes, it brings with it the potential of uh, of spreading dengue uh, 
cases through transmission or even small outbreaks or epidemics. So I think for that reason, uh, and I should mention also that in Singapore, which is, for those who've been there, it's a very modern, very clean city, much like an American city. It looks a lot like Honolulu. It's as clean or cleaner. And they have an, uh, the world's, I think, most exhaustive dengue control program. And even in the areas where everybody lives in expensive, screened, air-conditioned places, they still get dengue epidemics. So it's one of those things that if it gets there, it's very hard to stop it. Right. What, what does it look like when it, uh, in, in, the, in these many epidemics that we've seen? What, what's the clinical disease look like? First of all, just an epidemi- epidemiology caveat, it tends to be very explosive, just like influenza. Obviously, it's not person-to-person transmission. It has to go through a mosquito, but for very complicated reasons, it explodes. And so it appears that almost everybody in a city gets sick at once, or that can happen at least. And uh, people disbelieve that it's a mosquito-borne disease with uh, a mosquito incubation period of two weeks and a person incubation period of another week. Um, So that's one of the uh, surprising things about it. It appears that everybody gets sick at once. The illness is very much like influenza with fever, headache, muscle ache, and uh, sometimes a rash, not always, particularly visible in light-skinned people, but not a, not a really oppressive rash, one that physicians can see, but patients often don't even notice it, particularly dark-skinned patients. And then there are some unusual kind of symptoms that um, are nonetheless uh, uh, disturbing, uh, such as uh, sometimes extreme joint and bone pain. People used to call it breakbone fever, often an, an altered taste, a very funny taste in the mouth, so-called retroorbital pain, where it's difficult to turn the the ocular muscles are involved in a in a sort of ocular myalgia, and people can't turn their eyeballs. And uh, sounds like uh, not fun. What do we do to treat it when we see it? Well, there there's no specific treatment um, because there's thrombocytopenia frequently. You don't want to give aspirin, but otherwise um, uh, analgesics. It's it's basically conservative treatment, like you would you would offer patients for the flu. You know, stay in bed. Drink your mother's chicken soup. Um, you know, take uh, take antipyretics, but not aspirin, and um, wait it out. And no uh, vaccine immediately on the horizon. There is no vaccine that's likely to be used. I think in the next five years, but there are many different vaccines in development, and hopefully one or more of those will make it to market uh, in a few years. Uh, but nothing that offers uh, protection right now. Um, Although, you know, nobody gets dengue unless they get uh, bitten by a mosquito, so that protection from mosquitoes when you're in a dengue area is very effective. And it's with a little bit of knowledge, it's very easy to protect getting uh, bitten by one of the mosquitoes that transmits dengue. You've done a lot of traveling around the world and obviously been involved with uh, some of this in other than the United States areas. How effective is uh, vector control? And is that realistic in the United States? Yes, it's realistic. In fact, um, if you if you think back to uh, uh, 100 years ago, for those who've read this history, when Gorgas, uh, William Crawford Gorgas cleaned up mosquito breeding sites in Cuba, that prevented yellow fever. Uh, I think that there are, there are things one can do to greatly limit the ability of epidemics of dengue to occur. And the vector is the same for yellow fever, so I'm applying what Gorgas did to dengue as well. But um, on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, even in Singapore, we're a very clean city with air conditioning and screens and everything. They still have dengue epidemics despite an exhaustive aggressive vector control program. So it may not be entirely possible to prevent dengue outbreaks, but it should be possible 
to greatly limit them so you get clusters of cases rather than tens of thousands of people involved in the illness. I have to admit that when I saw uh, your article last month in JAMA, I was uh, I was somewhat uh, taken aback that maybe this is a, a topic that we need to put more resources on, pay more attention to as clinicians. Uh, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten from your uh, peers uh, after publication of this? Any surprises? Any... Well, I think it was all surprising. Those of us who've been working with dengue, both myself and my colleague and, and boss, Dr. Tony Fauci, have been dealing with dengue for years, for decades. And I think, it, well, I'll speak for myself. It was my feeling the public wasn't very interested and the physicians weren't ever very interested. And so when we wrote this uh, commentary, sort of it's a little bit like an editorial, it was a commentary with some science. We fully expected to get a yawn from everybody, but we actually got quite a bit of positive response, and we were both surprised. Uh, we, we didn't think there were that many people out there who were concerned, and, and we, we had thought that everybody's heard the message and nobody's interested, so we were quite surprised. And I don't know why. As we joke, perhaps it was a slow news day when that issue of JAMA came out, but maybe it's the fact that we've had West Nile, and uh, with HIV and West Nile and monkeypox, uh, you know, maybe physicians and others are more aware that infectious diseases tend to emerge from other places and come in here to the United States. How about this message and our students or residents? Do you think they're getting that perspective or maybe from emerging infectious disease in general? Do you think there's more work to be done there? You know, in terms of educating students, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not easy for me to tell. Uh, you know, I was at, at university as a professor for years, and we certainly taught our students. But my impression is that it's sporadic. Some medical schools are very good at exposing students to this kind of knowledge. My sense is, though, that many could do more. You know, in a world where Americans uh, are more likely to travel to more distant places, at the very least, these diseases, these exotic tropical diseases, will be risks for travelers. And nowadays, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, nobody's parents had ever traveled outside the United States uh, except to go to Canada or Mexico. And nowadays, you know, it's hard to find a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old who hasn't traveled abroad. So I think that fact, the fact that uh, people are traveling and exposing themselves to more things and that people from other countries can come here uh, and, and do in large numbers means that these diseases are less likely to be geographically restricted, more likely to be imported and show up in new places as West Nile did. So hopefully uh, things are changing slowly. Knowledge and awareness is changing slowly. And, and I hope that that is getting into medical school curricula as well. Is there a take-home message for our practicing physicians out there, especially those that might be closer to tropical areas? I think there is a take-home message. And, and, and I wouldn't say it's uh, related to the proximity to tropical countries, but I would say that those physicians who are involved in primary care in particular, which would be internists, general practitioners, pediatricians, and so on, probably should be aware of this, and just for the fact that they need to give information to people who travel, number one. Secondly, you know, occasionally physicians will see cases. There are a lot of imported cases, and they go back to any place in the United States, not just Miami and Honolulu. Right. They go back to, you know, Kansas and, uh, and Detroit and other places. So it's, it's good to be aware of these diseases and a differential diagnosis. Uh, it's important because dengue can't really be diagnosed unless you're aware of it. There's nothing that's pathognomonic in terms of, well, you know, there are laboratory tests, but unless you suspect them, you can't do it. And um, it's just a flu-like illness. But uh, it's one of those things that can make a person very sick and can result in hospitalization sometimes. It's just something that's good to be aware of in a differential diagnosis and to be able to counsel patients when they see them ill. Secondly, uh, I think in terms of travelers, all the major cities now have travel medicine clinics, and some of them have many such clinics. And even uh, a few smaller cities have travel medicine clinics as well. 
and it's important to give people information about how to prevent dengue when they travel to a dengue area. These mosquitoes are peridomestic. They tend to be crepuscular, meaning they tend to bite not in the midday sun, but you know more towards the, the late afternoon and evening. And uh, they don't fly very far from where they breed. So if you're in a seven-story hotel, you're not going to get a dengue mosquito up there, nor do they like to be near the seawater. So a little bit of common sense about where the mosquitoes are and uh, when they bite and protect yourself with clothing and insect repellents can prevent dengue in travelers. Physicians, I think, need to know that just to be able to counsel patients who are traveling. I'd like to thank Dr. David Morens for being our guest. We've been talking about the potential U.S. threat of dengue fever. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening.